Welcome to Think Change, podcast from ODI where we explore the biggest challenges of our time with leading experts and thinkers. I'm your host, Sara Pantoliano, ODI's Chief Executive. We ended 2022 with an episode focused on understanding the major trends that will be shaping the year ahead. We talked about the idea of the poly crisis, how COVID, the climate crisis, economic shocks and rising fragility are all combining to create complex and different forms of vulnerability. And we also spoke about the way this is increasing poverty and is widening the gap between the rich and the poor. And that's what I really want to focus on today in more detail for our first episode of the new year. Until very recently, conversations about ending poverty were quite mainstream. You know, the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs as they are known, spoke of ending extreme poverty um, or you know, reducing poverty in all its forms to very low levels by 2030 ambitious as that was. But poverty seems to have fallen out of common parlance um, when discussing the immediate crisis that we face today. More fundamentally, are notions we previously had of ending poverty simply by increasing individual income above an arbitrary line even useful anymore? Poverty has changed over time, but general definitions and perceptions are still stuck in the past in my view. And so I've invited three great guests today to discuss um, how we need to reframe poverty. They each bring a unique perspective on how we need to define, identify, and fight it. I'm really delighted to welcome Yamini Ayar. Yamini is the President and Chief Executive at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. Um, Yamini, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me for this really important conversation. Thanks. Um, we also have Ricardo Fuentes Nieva, our Director of Equity and Social Policy at ODI. Welcome, Ricardo. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. And last but not least, Ratin Roy, our Managing Director at ODI. Welcome, Ratin. Thank you, sir. Well, Ricardo, let me start with you. What do you see as some of the main limitations in how we understand and we talk about poverty at the moment? Thank you, Sarah. I, th- I think you mentioned it at the beginning. Uh, the idea that uh, a, a flow of income on a daily basis, which is how we have understand poverty for many, many decades following the lead from the World Bank, I think it's it's uh, somewhat outdated. It's still useful, but it needs to be accompanied with different approaches. Uh, over the last, uh, say, 15 years or so, we've, we've moved from income poverty to multidimensional poverty, uh, following kind of a rights-based approach. But, I mean, for me, uh, and especially given the, the context of the world in the 21st century, what we need is we need to start thinking about like how people, households, and communities are building wealth, and not only financial wealth, but other types of wealth, human capital, political connections, social capital, and the like. So we need to start moving from the flows you know, how, how much income, income we're having in a single day, to kind of a portfolio of different types of capitals that people and communities have. Uh, and again, you know, I want to stress, it's not only about financial capital. It's about like all the things that makes us wealthy, our connections, our education, our um, our natural capital, our, our, our forests and our climate. And, and especially the interaction between those types of capital, how my education uh, interacts 
with uh, my um, uh, uh, my political uh, connections and the things things like that. So I think that's really important to, to that we start thinking poverty in that in those terms. That's really interesting, Ricardo. So uh, building on what you're saying, how do you think being poor today differ from say ten or twenty years ago? I think the world has made enormous progress in um, in reducing the extreme income poverty. That's that was one of kind of like I mean the the, the big uh, results that uh, organizations like the World Bank uh, kind of like recognize, especially given the growth in in first in China and then in India. But but what the the, the climate change and the COVID crisis has shown us is that. The vulnerability of people and communities depends more, much more than income flows only. You know, people are more resilient when they have this portfolio of capital, uh, capital of assets, uh, tangible and intangible. So I think even though we 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 see kind of that decline in in uh, in the number of people living under a certain number, a certain poverty line, what we see is our understanding of what actually determines. What can you do with your life, which should be kind of a, a, um, a framework for how we understand poverty, is is changing, and and I think uh, it's uh, it's paramount that we start measuring uh, poverty differently, and that we start designing policies in a different way to adapt to this new reality. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Yamini, do you recognize this? I mean, you work on social policies, you work with governments. I mean, do you think any institutions have truly grasped the implications of this new definition of poverty? No, um, the short answer, but uh, let me complicate it a little bit. I think that the idea that poverty is multidimensional uh, itself was a long, hard battle. And the recognition that poverty measured just in terms of income and that it needs to at least acknowledge other forms of human capital uh, has, uh, you know, over decades uh, of uh, of engagement uh, on this issue uh, penetrated to a degree uh, into the policy ecosystem. So in India, for instance, uh, back in 2011, we con- conducted a socioeconomic caste census that essentially said we won't just take income criteria, but look at multidimensional aspects of poverty on the basis of which eligibility would be determined for people to access government benefits. But I think the bigger um, uh, challenge uh, here is sort of linking in uh, with what Ricardo just said is that the vulnerability also creates um, a lot of mobility in poverty, as in you're moving up and down the poverty ladder quite a lot through the course of your uh, increasingly so through the course uh, of your life cycle. So, you know, the the uh, and, and income shocks are now a very repeated and regular feature. So if I just, for example, look at the Indian context over the last three to four years, you know, we some of them were self-goals, some of them were policy externalities, some of them were uh, unimaginable things like pan- the pandemic. So we did, we demonetized uh, in 2016. Um, we uh, introduced a goods and services tax that had an implication, particularly on small and micro enterprises. Then we had COVID. Then this year we had a bunch of climate shocks that caused very high levels of serial inflation, which affects the consumption basket in a big way for, for the average Indian. Um, All of this together has created a context where 
there is a very strong likelihood due to multiple income shocks that those cohorts of households that had moved away from extreme poverty above the poverty line actually probably have been pushed back. Um, and as unemployment uh, is increasing, as vulnerabilities are increasing, the ability for households to move back up the ladder becomes much more complex. So we need to be, so, so I think where the big policy gap is, is that we're still living in a world where we think of poverty as in some ways a somewhat linear progression. You move up the poverty ladder out of poverty. But the honest truth is that even in a five-year period, you can go back down and you can move back up and then you can go back down because most households are actually vulnerable. So I actually think rather than thinking about this as, as poverty, if you think about this as vulnerability, we may understand the, um, the dynamism of the experience of poverty and then be able to design policy that responds in a much more agile way to this dynamic interaction that households have with the horrific experience of poverty uh, through their life cycles. Yeah, so true about you know the the dynamic nature of poverty. Ratin, you used to lead the poverty research center of UNDP in Brazil. What are some of the examples you've seen around the world of how wealth and poverty you know manifest in different ways? And and actually, what are some of the policies and you know, examples of effective policies that have responded to these nuances that you can recall? Thank you, Sarah. I'll take two examples. One from when I lived in Brazil and one from where I am now in the UK. So in Brazil, I noticed one day, there were all long flights from Brasilia, you know, to Asia and Africa. So I tend to sleep, but one day I happened to be awake in the daytime as the flight from Sao Paulo came into Brasilia, and I saw skyscrapers. Now, where I lived, there were no skyscrapers, there were only huge ranches and bungalows. So where are these skyscrapers coming from? And I suddenly realized the skyscrapers house the poor outside a city with very low density of population, and the rich, lived in the center of the city with access to assets, tangible and intangible. Firstly, land. Second, by virtue of the location, a variety of public assets which the poor had no access to. When I thought about my own city, Bombay in India, I realized it was the same there, that living in a slum meant that you had lack of access to a range of tangible and intangible assets that you did not have if you didn't live in a slum. And that is what really differentiated I think the drivers of poverty for someone who wants to stop being poor permanently and the kind of stuff that was in vogue when I was at the center, which is to talk about two very fashionable things, livelihoods, mercifully thrown out of the window now permanently, and social protection. Now, as I understood it, social protection should come if there's a disability which you get by an act of nature. It is not something that you, uh, you, you are able to counteract because of a social disability. The... The reason I think this has happened, and I, as an economist, I must share in the blame for this, is the active attempt to depoliticize poverty that has happened over the last 40 or 50 years. The, this has resulted in our not understanding uh, something that I've learned in the United Kingdom. When I go back now home uh, here, there'll probably be an appeal in my, in my box for food banks. There will be an appeal to try and give children in North London school meals that they're able to afford. Uh, in a sense, this is because uh, the recent crisis in Britain has meant that everybody in Britain except the top 3% of the population is going to be less rich than they were before. So the vulnerability to poverty of the bottom 40% in Britain today is more or less equal to the vulnerability of poverty of the bottom 
30% or 40% in India today. So why would this be so unless, as Ricardo says, it is happening because not because the solution or the problem lies in income drops, but in resilience to income drops, which can only come from assets, which include tangible and non-tangible assets. The lack of access to these assets is a profoundly political question. By avoiding it, we have both depoliticized politicized poverty and focused on the income question. And I think the time has come now to change that forever. Absolutely. And I think it's ODI. We're that set of making sure that uh, we can help you know, rethink poverty and, issues, and you say, make the, bring the politics back uh, into the equation. Uh, for instance, next week we'll be at the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, and we're actually holding an event to get leaders and decision makers to better understand the new dimensions of poverty so that you know, they can take meaningful action. Um, Ratim, what do you think is the key message that the leaders that are attending Davos need to understand about this issue? I mean, obviously making poverty political, but how do we put it to them in a way that they can't avoid the question? Well, I'm not being facetious, Sarah. One thing you could do is ask them to hand over their cell phones at once and do without them for 24 hours and ask what impact it had on their family lives, on their bottom line, uh, and on their ability to stay healthy. Uh, just those three things. And we might actually get a great understanding from that. Davos is a classic example of why we need a new definition of poverty. Because with a new definition of poverty comes a new definition of the rich and the powerful. The people in Davos, like you, are not necessarily rich. They're not even necessarily wealthy. I mean, you're wealthy, but you're not super wealthy. You're not Davos wealthy. But you are, as I am, as everyone in this conversation is well endowed. In the sense that we have a set of endowments, as Ricardo was saying, physical, financial, cultural, social, and networked endowments, which allow us to be part of a meaningful conversation with those who may be economically wealthy, politically powerful, socially relevant. That, with globalization, then becomes the essence of Davos. So the well-endowed have to ask themselves a question. What is it that we can do to make people less fortunately endowed than us better endowed? Can that be done purely to capitalism? Would that involve sacrifice? Would that involve different ways of seeing the problem? I think if the well-endowed recognized the fortunateness of their well-endowedness and tried to solve that problem rather than solving the problem through silly aphorisms like, you know, give a man a fish or teach a person to fish, neither improves endowments, I think Davos could play a big role. Whether it will or not, of course, is another matter. Yeah, quite. Uh, well, I may try to get their phones and see what they say, but I think that proves the point uh, very poignantly. Uh, Yamini, what do you think are some of the successful actions that policymakers could take um, in the medium term to you know, better protect people from some of the shocks um, they're experiencing and, and fundamentally to counteract rising inequality? I agree with the larger point that Ratan is making, which is that uh, the discourse on poverty needs uh, to be politicized all over again. It is fundamentally uh, a political act, uh, and it is fundamentally about how societies are structured, how power is allocated, uh, and therefore how capital of all kinds, financial, phys uh, human, social capital, uh, is allocated and distributed within society. Um, and the politics around that uh, shapes the possibility of opportunity for those who do not access capital or marginalizes those who do not have access to capital and consolidates power in ways that you don't get that kind of mobility. And it has also become almost uh, 
because it has been depoliticized, we're constantly looking for policy tools rather than a political conversation about empowerment and poverty. So when it comes to the policy tools, it has, and there too, by the way, there's been a big battle. It's just interesting that now some parts of that battle have become part of the mainstream and are seeking to depoliticize it. So for instance, the allocation of public finances to building aspects of human and social capital, it's fund, it's, it's a distribution, it's a, it's a redistributory uh, uh, question. It's fundamentally, foundationally political. And one of the big challenges always has been, especially in debates in India, but across the globe, about how much are we willing to allocate to building these forms of capital for policy to allocate, for policy to build these forms of capital, and how much um, is going to be used uh, for enhancing capital that the, that the capitalists already have access to. One of the interesting things that have happened, at least in the discourse in India, and technology uh, plays a role in all of this, and Ratan and I have been uh, agreeing about this and, and arguing in, in different ways about this for quite a long while, is that the idea that the state has some responsibility towards those who do not have capital by handing over cash. So the idea of it's it's sophisticatedly called a universal basic income. In India, we call it a direct benefit transfer. The idea that the state has some responsibility to what Ratan calls a compensatory state to compensate uh, for those who do not have uh, uh, the possibility of equal participation in market. Um, that has sort of become a deeply ingrained part of the politics of poverty in India. So across uh, the country, you will find, whether it's the national government or state governments, this redistribution being positioned as direct benefit transfer, I'm giving cash to the poor. And that is the beginning and end of my welfare responsibility for the state. And, and, and that, by the way, there's a complete elite consensus around this. Um, it is a consensus that brings in the, tech, the, 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 tech, the, the technology hegemony that marvels on the possibility of direct cash and direct te and technology that enables these transfers to take place. It's convenient for the big capitalists. Some small amount of transfers go to the poor, and then we can go on and do all the things that actually fundamine capital uh, of all kinds for the poor. For example, flout environmental regulations of all kinds to build all kinds of infrastructure that is basically going to enhance the capital of the capitalists and undermine all forms of basic assets and, in fact, enhance the vulnerability of those who's lo who lose their homes and lose their traditional livelihoods as a consequence of all of this infrastructure. So this, and, and it's done very cleverly because it creates a politics of welfareism, where I, of, of, of creating a welfare state, whereas fundamentally it's about doing the bare minimal rather than reimagining the fundamental challenges of power structures that create unequal societies in the first place. And then there is this other aspect of investments in human capital. Increasingly now, it has become common, and I find it very amusing, especially uh, in the very fraught debates that we've had in India about welfare spending, how um, those who don't like too much public spending uh, and worry a little too much, in my opinion, about fiscal deficits, arguing that, yeah, 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 we should be putting more on health and education. But by the way, the state doesn't know how to do very good health and education. So, may, so that then becomes a ruse on which you say it's not worth 
worth putting money into something that a state can do. We make a hell of a lot of money and produce bad infrastructure, but we should put more capital expenditure because there are huge multiplier effects there for all the big infrastructure that suits capital. So, you know, I, I, um, there is a urgent need to reframe the debate around how public finances need to be allocated and recognize that that is fundamentally a political choice not a policy choice, and also to be aware of the pitfalls of using the new marvels of technology as ways of doing the bare minimum and creating a ruse of a welfare state, which is actually fundamentally re, uh, further entrenching inequalities and power structures that exist that create this problem in the first place. I think, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. I see Rathi was... Uh, Just to um, supplement what Yamini was saying, in a first world context... In, if, if you take what Ricardo is saying, the fight over capital, look at Britain. So there's one fight about maintaining the countryside versus building houses and expanding the, appalling the short houses, stock, uh, you know, stock of housing for poor people. That's one fight. And that's a fight between those who would like to preserve the countryside as a capital asset for themselves. There's another fight about rights of way. This wonderful British custom where you can walk across someone's pr- private land by custom. You can walk for miles altogether. And those being closed down, both are fights over capital, and both are fights over assets. Are both are intrinsic to the po- to the politics of who has and who doesn't. So that politics, I think, is as vibrant and important in a rich country and as a poor one. And therefore, in a sense, what Ricardo has been proposing unifies the poverty discourse. It's no longer a problem of just poor geographies. It's a problem of people who are poor, irrespective of the geography in which they live. No, I completely agree, and I think you know we've uh, heard from. Yeah, I mean, in a way, this depoliticization of poverty goes hand in hand with the, you know, the politics of, of welfareism, which are functional to maintaining the status quo and basically, you know, allow these power structures to remain unchallenged. And in fact, Ricardo, this is what we've been, you know, discussing at the idea is really time to develop a new framework of understanding that can really, um, bring the politics back at the center and, you know, challenge these uh, policies that are, in a way, instrumental to uh, maintaining things in there and end up widening the gap between rich and poor. Definitely. Because what we we have here is uh, a body of work for the future, a body of work in in the understanding, in the theoretical understanding that, like, it's not flows uh, of of income that determine um, the well-being of people, but... uh, uh, a wide array of stocks, a portfolio, and the interaction between these different stocks, and we need to we need to kind of like push that idea and 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 use examples as Rathin and uh, was was describing uh, to to see the difference, you know, between seeing someone who's poor because doesn't have enough income or is slightly above the the poverty line and then is not longer considered poor, and someone who's got like education and connections and uh, savings and and all those things that allows us to to withstand shocks and i think that's that's key right now and that's key because what we see is this recurrence of bigger and bigger and bigger shocks be it uh, pandemics or be it climate shocks or be it economic crisis and things like that so so like as as jamini uh, was saying like people are, even if they're not poor, they might still be vulnerable. And this vulnerability is related to that kind of like uh, 
small portfolio of tangible and intangible assets. So that's why we need to think this. Now, there are like many challenges. The first and obvious challenge is the challenge of measurement. Many, many, many scholars over the years have tried to uh, systematize and standardize our understanding of how we measure the different types of capital, human capital, social capital, political capital, natural capital, all that. And and, uh, over the years, we've been facing many, many challenges, but that's not uh, a reason not to try. Uh, uh, It'd be a failure of imagination if we don't try to advance that that agenda just because it's difficult to measure on the opposite i think that's uh, that that gives one perfect strand of work uh, how we measure better the different types of capital and how we measure better the dynamics between different types of capital um uh, as, as as we move forward and then uh, then a different strand of work would relate to what jamini was saying you know how do we Reimagine public policies that uh, move away from transfers to redistribution, and and that's uh, at the center of that power struggle. You know, transfers are important. I, I don't want to throw away the baby with the bathwater. You know, transfers are key uh, in the short term, but but we cannot just rely on transfers to solve this this complex issue of of poverty around the world. We need to to think about how. Uh, different types of capital are distributed, how the state needs to play a role on on the accumulation of different types of of capital through public investment in education, through public investment in infrastructure, through uh, taxes and redistribution and the like, and what it means in terms of like the vulnerability of communities and societies. And one very important point is that like, I mean, this agenda is relevant, as Rathi was saying, not only for, for peoples under certain level of, of uh, gross national income, uh, it's relevant also for, for, uh, for high income countries. You know, the example that Rathin was, was, was mentioning is very important. That's in the spirit of the Sustainable Development Goals. But more importantly, that's in the spirit of people who are suffering for these shocks, you know, uh, from these shocks. And, and people who, like, in a way, kind of their plight is being disregarded because they're not under, a po- like, an income poverty line, you know. And they're so like, oh, you're, you're not poor, you know. But then uh, the fact that, that uh, your neighborhood is blighted by... Uh, by a crime, you know, and then your house is no longer worth anything, even though you put all your savings in that, you know, like, I mean, that's, that's a real social problem. And that's a, that's a problem of poverty. And and we're ignoring it because we're saying, oh, that's a, it's a homeowner, you know, like, I mean, just like, a, but we're not seeing the dynamics that, that when neighborhoods get crime ridden, the value of that asset is collapsing. And, and, and then like, I mean, you, you, even though you're not under a, an income poverty line, you might still be feeling poor and vulnerable, and 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 being left behind. So I think it's uh, it's paramount. It's paramount that uh, we start working on this, that we start discussing this more seriously, that we start measuring, and that we start designing public policies in a different way. So if we think about what's the biggest problem right now. Like maybe the most kind of a, a urgent problem is for me is this crisis of democracy, but it's closely related to what we're discussing. You know, it's closely related to the fact that, like, I mean, we think with transfers, you know, things are going to be solved. Uh, but like, I mean, people don't want transfers. People want two things: dignity and the ability to kind of like not be vulnerable. 
you know, and then uh, and then democracies are not are not really are not really providing that. But but I, I'm going to add a, a bit of a corrective to to this. I I, I think that it is true that democracy uh, has not necessarily opened itself up to solving the problem of inequality. In some ways, it has perhaps exacerbated it. But at the same time, without democracy, you would not have A, be alive to the problem, or nor would you have the ability to actually solve for it in and of itself. I mean, if you think about uh, the Indian context, the only way in which the poor have been able to make themselves heard through, into the policy space, which is fundamentally it is elite and it is it is in, especially as uh, the Indian economy opened up, it has uh, increasingly chosen to allocate at, at one point was trying to allocate less and less space for the for the voices of the poor. It is the Im electoral imperatives of democracy that ensured that there was some semblance of welfare and some semblance of investment in human capital in the poor. Uh, and in fact, it is through the process of democracy that we were able to at least begin what I think was an audacious and interesting experiment. And you only recognize how audacious it was once we stopped, once the experiment almost failed or was reversed, uh, was the uh, attempt to actually try and reimagine uh, what welfare is through a language of rights. And that really actually was, it's, it's, it's trying to get to exactly, Ricardo, what you were saying, human and social capital, but it was doing it through the grammar of rights in terms of uh, reimagining citizen-state relationships to be able to achieve that. And those spaces only emerged through democracy. So I wouldn't throw democracy out of the window, uh, uh, but and because I do think that democracy is the only form of political organization that we know that creates space for articulation of voice expression uh, and and a push for representation that creates this that creates a logic that pushes elites to respond no no totally you know i wouldn't i wouldn't also like i wouldn't throw democracy out of the window you know like i mean like i mean but my concern is more like how democracies are functioning especially in the last 30 years you know like i mean with the advent of globalization yeah. and yeah. and yeah. and i think like because you're totally right on how democracy changed the representation and, and the, the the spaces for voices of vulnerable groups, you know? And and the thing is, like, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to go back to how democracy was working. Yeah, so it's sort of uh, yeah, it's it's imperfect democracies or democracies which basically have moved into becoming electoral authoritarian democracies, which is the challenge. Well, thank you so much, Ricardo. Yamini and Rathin, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. Unfortunately, that's all we have uh, time for. But I think what's emerged really clearly is the extent to which poverty, as Yamini said, is fundamentally a political act. So it's time to rethink the framework around poverty, you know, beyond these arbitrary income levels that we've talked about and think of, you know, public policy or policy interventions that can genuinely aim to redistribute key assets to allow access to those who don't have um, um, these assets. I mean, this is a, a tall order, but it is something that we need to push for uh, to challenge the current consolidation of power and, and wealth. Um, thanks to everyone for listening to today's episode. As always, the research, the resources, the links that we have referred to in this episode will be in the show notes, including the link to our Davos event next week that I hope you will tune in for. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And if you enjoy the show, remember to rate, review and subscribe. Thank you very much. Goodbye.